Hey all, this is Stephen Howe, co-host of Not So Private Equity. We have a great discussion ahead of us today, but before we dive in, I want to thank our sponsor, ECA Partners. ECA is an executive search and on-demand consulting firm specializing in low and mid-market private equity. To learn more about ECA's services, you can reach them through their website, eca-partners.com. Now, I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Mike Fritz. Mike is the CFO at Paragon Films, a private equity-backed industry-leading manufacturer of stretch film products. Their stretch films are thinner, they're stronger, and they're greener than the other films on the market. And Mike has seen the company through significant growth and a number of private equity transactions. Mike, welcome to Not So Private Equity. Thanks, Stephen. Happy to be here. So as we mentioned, you are a CFO for Paragon Films, a private equity-backed company. Tell us a bit about how you ended up working in private equity. I came to Paragon after recently working at a publicly traded midstream energy company. A recruiter reached out to me looking to fill the CFO role at Paragon. The current CFO or then CFO was looking to retire. And by happenstance or accident fell into working for private equity. I started at Paragon in August of 2013. During the beginning of 2016, the entrepreneur founder of Paragon Films decided it was time to sell the company as he had no natural heir or succession plan in the family. And that started our journey into private equity in the early 2016 period. Well, Mike, you know, I can tell you one of the things in recruiting that we often see is whenever a company is purchased by a private equity firm, a CFO is one of the most common positions that are switched out. Can you tell us a little bit about how you stuck with Paragon so long and about the journey from being a privately held business to now going through a few different owners? Yeah, I feel extremely fortunate to have lasted as long as I have. The very first private equity sponsor that we had has a CFO summit for their Portco CFOs every two years. And I went to the first CFO summit that they had when I was under their ownership. And they had the CFOs in the room. I think there was 20 plus CFOs of their portfolio companies raise their hand if you were the incumbent in the company prior to Winpoint ownership. And I was the only one in the room that had survived that transition. So I feel extremely fortunate there. But it's been, an, as you mentioned, an interesting change in the requirements that are different between the two roles, working for a smaller family-held business, and then the demands of what you may need to do under a portfolio company or, or private equity ownership. Let's dive into some of those details. So is, are there things that you had to start doing or maybe some things that you had to stop doing once you were owned by a private equity firm? The very first thing that we had to do specifically in the finance accounting IT function was really broaden and deepen our FP&A function. It wasn't as robust as what many private equity companies want in their portfolio companies. And that was an area in which we were extremely light so that required some rearrangement of job duties, beginning to do some things that we hadn't done before, but that were in my background from previous companies, much more along the lines of 13-week cash flows, five-year plans, annual operating plans, the monthly variance analysis that we did, 
at the time probably wasn't robust enough for what a PE company did. So that was probably the very first thing that we had to do under private equity ownership in that we weren't doing previously with the entrepreneur founder. Mike, tell us a bit about the type of toolkit that a private equity backed company is looking for in their CFO. I've seen a few different tools in that toolkit, but one of the things I would generally say is that the CFO today of a private equity portfolio company is more of a generalist than they have been in the past. And as such, there are a lot of different paths to that CFO role from investment banking to consulting to big four accounting to coming up through FP&A. My background was in the standard traditional big four accounting CPA route, did get an MBA along the way. But that was the path that ultimately led me to this job. But generally, the CFO is wearing a lot more hats today than I did in this role maybe 10 years ago whether it be the FP&A function, strategy, the work in corporate governance, as well as just the simple blocking and tackling that needs to happen on the day-to-day accounting and IT basis. One of the biggest differences there is just wearing a lot more of those hats. And you think that starting your career in public accounting may have given you some of the tools that you needed in order to be successful and hang in there through a number of transactions? I think so. It gave, definitely gave me an understanding for the pace that things were going to happen in private equity. They definitely happen a lot faster than they do in the privately held companies that I've worked for in the past. Definitely wouldn't say it's not an exclusive path that you have to take or go that route, but it definitely opened me up to a number of different industries, business processes, and ways of doing things that were valuable along the way into this position. Let's talk a little bit more about pacing, and I'm not so much curious about the day-to-day as much as I am the between transactions. So let's say a private equity firm acquires a company. Ultimately, that private equity firm is going to need to transact again to recoup their investment, pay their LPs for loaning them the money to buy the business in the first place. Are you just heads down doing CFO work and then one day you get tapped on the shoulder by the private equity firm and says, hey, look, we're going to sell in six months. We're selling in next year. Go ahead and, and get everything ready for another transaction. Or tell us a little bit about the time in between and then up to the next transaction. We've sold, we're in our third round of private equity ownership. So I've been through transactions with the entrepreneur founder and then through two full turns with private equity. And in those two individual turns, it was much more collaborative with the private equity sponsor. During a transaction or sale process, one of the things that I and my team had to do was put together the marketing materials and a five-year business plan. The conversation as we got closer to the successful execution of that five-year plan, it starts the conversations with the private equity sponsor looking at the market and assessing when is the right time to exit and how. So it's not necessarily getting tapped on the shoulder as much as though I'm sure that happens in some instances. We knew that we were performing ahead of and to the five-year plans that we put forth. And as we got closer to those goals and objectives, we internally started the conversation with our private equity sponsors in both instances. As I think our audience can recognize here, Just because you've been through a few transactions, you've seen and led a lot of growth inside of Paragon Films. 
what are the different levers that you have to pull at different stages in the growth of the company? So I'm thinking here about transitioning from maybe organic growth to inorganic growth. Have you had to make that shift? Is that something on the horizon for Paragon Films? And how does that affect the finance office? Through the first two transactions with our private equity sponsors, inorganic growth was something that we had modeled, that we had looked at, that we had participated in. But we didn't execute or close any of the deals that we looked at. 100% of our growth during both of those transactions was organic. And it's one of the things that I'm most excited about with our current PE sponsor is their appetite and willingness and desire to be more acquisitive. I have asked for many years to hire a VP M&A to focus on that, to help drive that inorganic growth. And our current PE sponsor has stepped up and agreed that that's the right decision and has agreed to fund that position going forward. And we've recently hired somebody into that role and look forward to kind of growing that inorganic side of the business, whether it's through adjacent geographies or adjacent products. But that hasn't necessarily been a lever that we've pulled to date. The relationship between a portfolio company and a private equity firm can come in a lot of different flavors. And Mike, I think you're particularly in a good seat here to tell us about that relationship because it's the CFO who's going to get the most questions from the private equity firm. Tell us about what that relationship is usually like and if it's different from one private equity owner to another. Over the three private equity owners that we've had, there are a lot of similarities and a few differences. Between the three, the first most notable difference has been board composition or board structure. The first board that we had had more outsiders than people from partners from the private equity firm. The second board had predominantly private equity individuals. And then later towards the end, we added one outside director. And then with our third PE sponsor, It's a nice mix of both. We've got almost equal number outsiders and insiders. So that relationship and reporting structure based upon the board structure varies depending upon their knowledge and day-to-day interaction with the company and with management. The next thing that changed when working between the three different private equity companies was predominantly the cadence timing and frequency of reporting results. At the end of the day, it's my job, the CEO's job, to deliver results for our shareholders of the LP and the GP. But each of those companies had different reporting packages, different structures, different timing of when and how we met to discuss results. And then there was different levels, lastly, of interaction from a weekly phone call at the start, pretty much all three of the private equity companies upon purchase of the company had weekly touch points to kind of discuss orders and backlog and revenue and margins and how are things looking this week. Then as the comfort level increases with the private equity sponsor and the management team, those become less frequent as well as I would say probably so long as the company is achieving its objectives and hitting those results. And then that manifested into monthly or quarterly kind of touch points along the way. So those would be kind of some of the differences between 
the three private equity companies. The thing too that was different, so as I look back and think about it, the first private equity company was from December of 16 to March of 19. And then from March of 19 to December of 21 to current, three vastly different macroeconomic periods. So if we look at most recently, we've had inflation and rising interest rates, which changes the narrative and the interaction with the board versus the period with our second private equity ownership, which kicked off not even a year before, roughly about a year before COVID. And most of that ownership was in the COVID period versus kind of a more typical period that occurred in the years prior. And each of those kind of macroeconomic events or cycles or periods necessitated different interactions with each of the private equity companies based upon what was going on in the environment at that time. You know, I hear often different private equity firms and portfolio companies or CEO of private equity-backed businesses, they'll talk about a private equity firm either being hands-on or hands-off. What do you think people mean whenever they use that terminology? So I think it's the level at which decision-making authority is delegated or allowed to occur at the portfolio company level. And we've tried to manage that through an approval matrix. We've tried one of the very first meetings and discussions that we have with our board after acquisition is sitting down, discussing and going over the approval matrix. What do we have? Can we do and commit ourselves to uh, without their approval? And then which things do they want to sit on and get their approval for? Um, And then the second part of that, too, about being hands-on is how much detail does the private equity sponsor want to review or get into? It specifically relates to variance analysis, whether it's on pound or volumes, revenue, margin, customer churn. At what type of detail level are they comfortable with reviewing and, and answering questions? And that varies. That's varied by each of the firms that we've been owned by. Those variations in firms, do you think that any of those differences are a result of just the size of Paragon? So very small company, perhaps a private equity firm, has fewer resources, they're leaning more on the resources inside the the portfolio company. As Paragon grows, you know, the, the private equity firms that are investing in the business are larger, more sophisticated, they have more at stake, so they want to spend more time reviewing, they expect more details. Is that right or, or does it not matter at all? No, I, I think it's fair. I think the larger the size of the check, potentially the larger or more likely they are to dig into some of those details. And I also think it's a function of the number of portfolio companies that the private equity firm has invested in at that time. I think to the extent that there are fewer companies under management or ownership, I think you're probably more likely to get detailed questions. And I also think that is also driven directly by a company's performance. I think to the extent that a company is achieving or exceeding its financial and other goals, I think one is less likely to receive some of those detailed questions. As a portfolio company, are you thinking about some of the major concerns that your private equity firm has? For example, right now we're hearing that deal volume has slowed, so we're we're seeing fewer transactions. Does that matter at all for the portfolio companies that are already owned by the private equity firm? It matters to the extent that we want to be acquisitive and we want to go out and bolt on other acquisitions, whether in adjacent geographies or adjacent 
products. That fact that deal volume is down, that interest rates are up, that the cost of capital is higher definitely impacts us. And while we may not be involved in some of those as many day-to-day discussions about that, it definitely impacts us and is a discussion that we have with our board. That's a good point, Mike. So, I mean, we've been talking about Paragon Films as a portfolio company, but of course, right now in Paragon's history, you've become a bit of a private equity firm yourself in the sense that you're now a platform and looking to bolt on additional acquisitions. So you're going through some of the similar thought processes that the folks that are invested in Paragon itself are. Whenever you joined Paragon Films, were you hoping that they would eventually become private equity backed? I had no idea when I started that that was going to be the trajectory and the path that we would end up on. The company itself, Paragon, based in northeastern Oklahoma, the founder, entrepreneur founder here had at the time no plans of retirement or do anything with the business, was local to the area. And at the point when he said that he was ready to sell, it did catch us a little off guard at the time because that wasn't something that was on our radar at the time. It's definitely ended up being a fantastic thing for not only the founder, but as well as the management team, as well as the continued kind of growth of our company. Because one of the things that I've noticed that it's different between Paragon now and when it was when I started almost 10 years ago, is we have a lot more resources to grow the company. And that's fantastic. We're not constrained from a capital perspective. If we can prove or justify through a business case that we want to grow or expand or to invest in a capital project that we think is the right thing for the company, we've had access to do capital on pretty much every project that we've wanted to do under private equity ownership, which has been fantastic. Folks who are maybe they're a CFO in a public company or perhaps they're in a private company, if they want to become or maybe they're thinking about becoming a CFO inside of a private equity backed organization, what would you what would you tell them? I'd tell them a few things. At first, the idea of being owned by a private equity company, if you're not in the business or haven't come up through the business, can seem daunting or scary, but it's not. I would tell them to truly understand the investment thesis which the private equity company gave to their investment committee by which that they purchased you. Understand those drivers of value or those levers of value. Understand what you can do to help accelerate that. And if you align your job and your responsibilities to that value creation plan that helps drive the creation of value for the private equity company and the GP and the LP, then you'll be very successful in the role. I know private equity firms are very good at aligning incentives of the portfolio company management team with their own incentives, but I'm curious, do you look forward to the next transaction? Yes and no. I look forward to the next transaction because it means hopefully that we've been successful in accomplishing the goals that we put forth when we were purchased. I am not necessarily as excited from the standpoint or perspective that a sales process is a lot of work on the CFO. It's a a sprint. It's a short period of time. 
but it's also a lot of work and a lot of responsibility that feels like the majority of it falls on to the CFO and GC or legal team, if that's available or there as well. How do you manage that time? Because as you mentioned, it's a, a lot of that work falls onto the CFO. Do you delegate more during that time or you just find that you're in the office a bit more? It's a matter of both. During those processes, depending upon the PE company and the management team at the time, the fact that the company is going through a sales process may not be public knowledge to other people in the company. And so the amount of work that gets delegated is not as much if it were a project that didn't deal with the sale of the company. Ultimately, create a small team to help me with some of those requests, but it's not as broad as I would particularly think of if it was just a typical project that we might do in the accounting or finance team. For example, in this last process when we were sold in December of 2021, we had throughout the process a tracker that used to accumulate and respond to diligence requests. And that tracker ended up throughout the process having over a thousand items that we ended up having to respond to. And so as a result of that small team, you do end up spending a little bit more nights and weekends working and answering those to be responsive to the needs of the people that are doing diligence on the company. Wow. So let's dive into detail around a transaction. Tell us a little bit about what happens before, during, and then perhaps immediately after a transaction. So prior to a transaction, the items that we perform or do typically include interviewing investment bankers and preparing marketing materials. During that process of interviewing investment bankers, I sat in on three to five, four to six different banking presentations where they gave their assessment of Paragon's strengths, their weaknesses, how the company would be positioned if it were to be sold, what that marketing strategy would be, who they would reach out to, the timeline of that transaction, and then what they expect the enterprise value to be at the time of closing. So we sit through those presentations, we choose a banker, then after choosing the banker, we start working on the marketing materials. The marketing materials in the infancy or first stages represent typically a teaser or a couple page overview of the company, maybe a description of the industry with a high level revenue and, and EBITDA numbers. While those teasers are going out to a broader audience to gauge whether or not there is interest in receiving a confidential information memorandum or a SIM, we start putting that document together. And it can be anywhere for us, a 60 to 80 page slide deck, the SIM is. While we're preparing on that, the legal team is working on the confidentiality agreements for individuals that have shown interest from the teaser to receive that confidential information memorandum. And so in that SIM, a lot of that data is an industry background, overview of the management team, an overview of the products, overview of the customers, and then financial data. And a lot of the products, the customers, the financial data all comes from the ERP or the BI tools that we use. 
So that becomes a large driver of the time. And while that's also going on, there's typically in the three processes that I've been a part of a industry study, as well as a sell side quality of earnings or Q of E that help both the private equity or strategic buyer better understand, especially if they're not in your vertical or in your making your product, better understand your industry as well as the financial basis that which the financials are presented. So that's kind of what occurs prior to kind of fully kicking off a process. Then once a process is kicked off, after the SIM is released, the various interested parties will submit offers or indications of interest. And from that, we've had somewhere between six and 10 different management presentations. So in that process, sit down and do a four-hour overview of the company to go through a management presentation, meet the potential private equity or strategic buyers, and then have dinner with them either the night before or the night after or the night of the presentation. So from that perspective, do get to meet those potential individuals that might be the owners of the company down the road. And then after that management presentation is done, typically a data room or VDR or virtual data room is open to them to allow them additional information to the company. And all the time that the SIM and the management presentation was being put together, the teams is putting information into the VDR that could help provide just another layer or two deeper of information about the company that they wouldn't get through those initial marketing materials. And then lastly, immediately after the close, so that VDR, from that VDR, the interested parties will then send management questions into the banker that then show up on this tracker that I mentioned where we had over a thousand items on the last sales process. And then the team, largely quarterbacked by myself and our general counsel, divvy up those questions, respond to those, and that takes up a significant amount of time during that sales process. Then kind of once you get to closing or a contract signing, there immediately after, then work is shifted to what are those post-closing deliverables, what is needed to finalize the transaction. Those things typically occur 60, 90, 120 days after, because certain estimates were made at the time of closing, specifically around the amount of working capital, the amount of debt, the amount of cash on hand that the company has at the time of sale. So that's post-closing, the work circles back to finalizing those estimates or making those estimates turn to actual, and then working with the new private equity company, specifically on corporate governance, what that structure is going to look like, what the board's going to look like, and then what's their kind of reporting cadence. So those would be the steps immediately after closing of a transaction. I appreciate you walking us through that, Mike. That's really helpful insight and, you know, kind of uncovers a lot of, of what folks kind of, you know, they think that you go in and it's like buying a car or something. But of course, these are very involved and there's a good reason why there's lots of sophisticated people in this type of a business when it comes to the sale and acquisition of company. Mike, I'm curious, you were working for Paragon, of course, before private equity ownership. Were there any notions you had about private equity that you found either are true or are not true? The six, seven years that I've been owned by private equity company, 
I think I had some negative connotations prior to coming in. And I'm not exactly sure if I truly recall what those were. It just had a stigma or aura about it that wasn't necessarily positive. But I can honestly say that my experience through all three private equity owners has been fantastic. The people are engaged. I've truly felt through all three owners want to help the company succeed. They want to help it grow. We've been very aligned on our objectives and their objectives. So from that perspective, it's been a very good partnership, a relationship with all three. And I've been very excited to be owned by each of them. Thanks for that, Mike. And I really appreciate your perspective on private equity in general, especially from the perspective of the office of the CFO inside of a private equity-backed company. And Mike, thanks so much for joining us on Not So Private Equity. Thanks. It was a pleasure.